thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be discussing Alfred Korzybski and general semantics. This is probably a term that is considered rather obscure to many viewers, but at one time, general semantics was a popular topic and a very influential one, particularly when S.I. Hayakawa, professor of English at San Francisco State University, was elected to the United States Senate as a Republican. He was a specialist in general semantics. My guest today is Rolf Sattler, who is an emeritus professor of biology at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. He is a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. He is a specialist in plant morphology and author of the award-winning book Organogenesis of Flowers, as well as Biophilosophy, Analytic and Holistic Perspectives, and nearly a hundred scientific papers. He taught a course on biology and Zen at the Naropa Institute in Colorado and has also given an invited lecture on the life sciences and spirituality in honor of the Dalai Lama's 60th birthday. His newest book is Science and Beyond Toward Greater Sanity Through Science, Philosophy, Art, and Spirituality. Rolf is based in Canada, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Rolf. It is a real pleasure to be with you once again. Thank you very much, Jeff. The pleasure is mine. We'll be talking about general semantics today and uh, the work of Alfred Korzybski, who died in 1950. Let me ask you uh, to begin with, how uh, were you first introduced to this area of knowledge? Uh, as soon as I found out about him, I was and read his uh, magnum opus uh, science and uh, sanity. I was so deeply impressed because I thought, he touched some of the most important issues in science, philosophy, and our society. Well, the book was originally published in the 1930s. You, I think, even though you're older than I am, you, you would have been too young to have read it uh, when it first came out. Do you remember when uh, you, you first encountered this material? It was first published in 1933, and then there were several uh, other um, editions. It's even available now on the internet. Uh, so I I don't remember when exactly, but probably in the 70s or 80s. I was uh, I was aware of his most of best known uh, slogan: "The map is not the territory." For a long time. But uh, it took me longer than to find out more about him and his book and uh, uh, reading his book. It's a very, very uh, difficult book to read, actually, 800 pages. And uh, I think he has the greatest ideas, but I think he's not the best writer. So um, 
the Institute of uh, General Semantics that he founded, I think in the 30s, uh, which is still going very strong, they um, they edited what's called selections from uh, general cement from science and sanity, selections from science and sanity. And so um, that is much more accessible. And then there is a book by Kodish and Kodish uh, entitled Drive Yourself Sane. And this is an excellent exposition of uh, Korsipsky's ideas, relatively easy to read. So I can recommend that very much, both the selections and that, in that book by Kodish and Kodish. Well, I'm presuming if we're talking the 1970s or 1980s, at that point in your career, you were probably very well established as a plant morphologist. Yes, yes. And uh, uh, I mean, Kosipsky also influenced my, my work in plant morphology. Actually, it's interesting, as I pointed out in my recent book, uh, Science and Beyond. Um, I, before I learned much about Kosipsky and read his uh, Science and Sanity, I came to very similar conclusions. And then when I finally read his uh, his book, it was an enormous confirmation of what I had found out on my own and through other authors. So very gratifying. Well, I gather that by emphasizing the uh, theme that the map is not the territory, and by emphasizing the word sanity, uh, Korzybski is suggesting that people who confuse the map for the territory are, in, in, in effect, uh, behaving in a manner that's insane. Yes, yes. But he understands insanity, of course, in a broader sense than the medical and psychiatric uh, sense. But, uh, but it is a, a kind of insanity if one confuses the map with the territory or if one confuses an image with, real, with reality or if one confuses a language, whatever is said uh, through language, with, uh, with the territory, with, with reality. Uh, one uh, very important uh, uh, slogan by Kosipsky that is less known is whatever you might say something is, it is not. <laughs> I think this is an enormously important statement. That means whatever I might say about myself, I am not. Whatever I might say about you, you are not. Whatever we might say about the U.S., Russia, China, it is not. And whatever we might say about God, God is not. I mean, this is really of enormous significance, isn't it? Because if we are not aware of that, then we fall into the trap of identification. And that's a major, major problem that Kosipsky pointed out so much. Now, in our previous interview, I'm going to, for the benefit of some of our viewers who haven't had a chance to uh, view our earlier interview, I'm, I'm linking to it right now on the upper right of your, your screen. But, and in that interview, you emphasize the notion of the unnameable, that you could even say mystical significance of things cannot be put into words. 
Korsipsky referred to the unspeakable, which is the same as the unnameable. And uh, he also referred very much, as I do, uh, to uh, silence in the silent level. And uh, that reality really is at the silent level, because whatever we can say about it, it is not. So we have to become silent. But one should not think that, therefore, whatever is said is totally fictitious. Not at all. Um, as he showed through his structural uh, differential, which is actually behind me, he showed that we abstract from reality uh, through first through sensory experience and then through language and then through uh, inferences and other and, and more broader inferences and so on. So we abstract. And what do we do when we abstract? We select certain features. So when we say something, we it's a it's a selection of certain features. So when we, for example, say something about a rose, a rose is red or whatever. This is a selection. It is not what a rose is. A rose is infinitely more than just red. And the same thing, what we say about God is infinitely more than what, what can be said or what can be said about another person. We often say about another person one thing. That's, that's an abstraction. That's one aspect. Maybe it's totally wrong, but it could be correct. But even if it's correct, it's only a selection. And it's very misleading if we mistake a selection for the whole thing. So when I introduced you, I referred to you as an emeritus professor of biology, for example. That it's true about you, but it would be uh, very inaccurate to think that I've now encapsulated who you are. Yes, that is so correct. That is so correct. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, I think we just fall into this trap so often we say something about a person. For example, we say uh, he is bad. And then we think that's all he is. And that, of course, has, has really catastrophical consequences. Uh, even if we say he is good, that's not all he is. Uh, there is a very nice quote from Hermann Hesse in his Citata where he says, a man, a man is uh, not never holy saint or holy sinner, always more than what can be said. So for that reason, as you know, Kosipsky suggested certain what he called um, extensional devices. They draw attention to the process of abstraction and the misuse of language. And one uh, of these extensional advices is to avoid the is of identity and the is of predication. Is of identity means, for example, when I say he is a politician. Is of uh, predication is, uh, for example, if I say he is bad or he is good or whatever. So, so, so Kosipsky suggested we should avoid this is because this is indicates only a partial reality, only an abstraction. It doesn't indicate reality. And therefore, he suggested what we should, if we, if we cannot avoid the is, we should at least 
add, etc., and say he is bad, etc., he is good, etc., he is a terrorist, etc., and so on. And that gives a more encompassing picture and reminds us that uh, uh, a, sel a selection of traits is not reality itself, but just a selection, an abstraction. In fact, I noticed that the journal published by the Institute of General Semantics is called ETC or etc. Yes, yes, that's right. <laughs> and it, it suggests to me that what he's po pointing toward here is the problem that we have with the use of labels. It's particularly uh, problematic, I think, in the area of psychopathology, where people get labeled, you're autistic, you're schizophrenic, you're borderline, and, and then we, we tend to think that we now understand this person because we have a label. Yes, I think that is very common, and that can have very negative, very uh, almost devastating consequences. There's a nice quote by Soren Kierkegaard. He said, when you label me, you negate me. You negate me in what I am, what I really am. <laughs> so I think that's so important to keep in mind, and I think that is so often forgotten. I am under the impression that these days, not many people are aware of Korzybski and aware of even the term general semantics uh, is not as widely known as it once was, but that the, the movement has had enormous influence in, in fields apart from general semantics, such as Psychotherapy in general or neuro-linguistic programming is an, another field that's been very much influenced by general semantics. Yes, I agree. I agree. But I still think that not enough attention is paid to it. And I think general semantics and these related fields should be taught in school and uh, university. And uh, as far as I know, it's not sufficiently taught. In fact, I think it should be taught already in kindergarten. And even before, uh, parents should know about that because very early on in childhood, children often ask the question, what is this? And then the parent gives the answer, this is a flower, or this is a, a, a dog, or whatever. But that's the wrong answer. It's, when they say it is a flower, what is said, that doesn't touch the reality. So what they should say to their children is, we call this a flower, we call this a dog. And then there would not be the confusion of the identification of language and reality. So it should start very early. But the opposite happens from early childhood on. We get indoctrinated into the identity of language and reality. And this, I think, has catastrophic effects that I can see everywhere, also in science, philosophy, and in religion. Well, I think it's particularly evident in politics, where language is often used as, as a weapon. You, you uh, in, in political discourse, especially recently, we tend to label our political opponents as, as evil in, in some way or another, as murderers often. Yes. And it, when people take that language literally, it, it can lead to violence, in fact. Even if these labels are correct, 
one should still add the etc. And that is normally forgotten. We are in the middle of an election campaign and I can hear it every day what, what politicians say to their opponents. There is never an etc. There is only you are this, you are that, you do this, that and so on. And so much is forgotten. And that gives such a misleading picture to society. So yeah, I think, Jeff, you understand my enthusiasm for Kosivsky and general semantics. I think we would live in a much better world if, as I said before, Kosivsky <laughs> general semantics would be taught in kindergarten and upwards. Well, I do know that general semantics has, has generated some controversies. Uh, S.I. Hayakawa, uh, who was a proponent of general semantics and a professor at San Francisco State University, was elected to the United States Senate. Uh, I think Korzybski himself regarded general semantics semantics as a science, as did Hayakawa. But I know the um, skeptical commentator, Martin Gardner, who has often been very hostile to my field of parapsychology, described general semantics as a pseudoscience. Yes, I don't understand how anyone could say that, because I think there's so much scientific evidence for for general semantics and also for his structural differential. We know through science that uh, how abstraction occurs. We know that um, sensory experience is an abstraction. Uh, our sensory experience um, is, is a selection from what exists in reality. For example, we cannot smell as well as dogs can. So we select only a narrow band of, of, of odors. Uh, the same for, for vision. We cannot see ultraviolet, for example, like, um, like bees. So uh, we select again a small uh, portion of the electromagnetic uh, spectrum. And uh, so when it comes to sensory, uh, sensory experience that is so fundamental for science, I think there is much evidence for Korsipsky's uh, emphasis on uh, abstraction and selection. So I cannot understand how anyone can say this is pseudoscience. Then when it comes to language, again, we know uh, from many linguistic studies that language uh, cannot really completely portray what, what we experience. It, it, it's a selection. Think, for example, of describing a sunset. Well, I mean, we can say a number of things about sunset, uh, color rouge, what, and what have you, but I don't think language can really completely capture the beauty of a sunset or, let's say, a flower. I don't think that language can completely uh, capture the 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 reality of a flower we can say it ha it has so many sepals so many petals uh, and and uh, many other things we can say but I think so much is missed out so I, I fail to understand how anyone could say that uh, accuse Kosipsky of pseudoscience. The diagram that uh, is behind you, structural differential, I, we've been looking at it through both of your interviews. It looks like a necklace with a chain of sausages hanging down from it. <laughs> yeah, there's actually the one 
by Kwasipski, which is which is this one here, uh, and what is hanging down. These are all the uh, traits we miss through abstraction. But there is another one. I I don't know whether can you see this one too. Yeah. This is this is a representation of Kosipsky's structural differential by Steve Stockdale, and I think that's maybe easier to understand. There, this represents a, a reality uh, with many, many, many traits. Now, when we perceive reality, we 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 select some of these traits that are there. So you can see it's not totally fictitious, but it's much, much less than what is there. So it's a selection, it's, a, it's a, an abstraction. And then when we describe what we perceive, we again select some of what we've perceived, but not all of it, and so it's again a selection. And when we draw inferences, we, we select even more. So as we go down there from what actually happens in reality through perception, description, and inference, we miss out more and more because we abstract more and more. I think this is extremely useful diagram to, to show the process of abstraction. I have seen some scholars who refer to what they call the God's eye point of view, where God sees everything at once, past, present, and future. God knows what's in, in the minds of every living creature. As Schopenhauer said, God is the one mind that sees through the eyes of all creatures. So it, it, it's not humanly possible to experience everything all at once. The uh, human organism is simply not large enough. Yes, of course it's impossible. But what is possible, I think, and very often ignored, is that that we... All we have are selections, abstractions, and recognizing that makes a huge difference because many people think when they talk about something, that's it. And even images also, uh, uh, they forget that an image does not portray reality as it is. You probably know René Magritte, uh, the surrealist painter. He painted an, an apple, for example, and then he wrote there, this is not an apple. And many people are puzzled by that because they say, look, this is an apple. But no, it's only an image of an apple, and an image is less than reality. Gregory Bateson, who was also very much influenced by uh, Kosipsky, I think, he said many people um, don't eat a meal, they eat the menu. <laughs> they eat what's written on the menu <laughs> uh, because they don't realize that when, when, when on the menu is written asparagus, asparagus is, is not the same as the world. They sin infinitely more. What we eat is infinitely more than what's written on the menu. <laughs> so we come across this failure to recognize abstraction almost everywhere. I have read that general semantics can be thought of as akin to yoga in, in the sense that we can talk about it, there's a theory to discuss, but the theory is very different from the practice, that there are practices involved such as remembering that language is, has its limitations. Yes, oh yes, I think so. You, just a moment ago, you referred to Schopenhauer, uh, whom I also appreciate very much as a philosopher. He made a very interesting remark 
I think I've written it down somewhere. Uh, it's it's. Uh, I don't have it here now, but it's something. What he said is the end of philosophy is silence, and uh, silence was also very much uh, emphasized by Kosipsky because reality cannot be captured through language, and so we have to become silent to come closer to reality. And I think this is very much emphasized by many uh, spiritual uh, teachers that we have to become uh, silent. Nisargadatta said, in silence uh, you grow. And uh, many other uh, spiritual teachers ha have said similar things. And I think that's one of the, maybe one of the, uh, aims of spirituality to bring us closer uh, to reality and, and their silence is very important. Is it the case then that uh, in general semantics one would be encouraged to pause, to uh, have a silent moment before speaking, to kind of reflect on things and not just push ahead? Yes, <laughs> actually, Kosipsky emphasized that very much, the pausing. Yes, that's very important because very often we just react all, almost automatically and then we don't even listen carefully what the other has said. So, yeah, pausing and silence, very important. I think so. I think I read not long ago that it's referred to in general semantics as the neurological delay. Is is that right? Yes, yes, yes. Because we are we are, we are very much uh, habit, habitual creatures, and so habits are very strong, and they influence our reactions. Uh, uh, Korsipsky talks very much about semantic reactions. Uh, when someone says something, people react immediately. And so, therefore, he also stressed very much the etc., because that invites us to make a pause. And then our reaction, our semantic reaction is different, and it leads to greater sanity. I think sanity is so important for Korsipsky. Well, how has the practice of general semantics influenced you in, in your work in, in science, in plant morphology? Realizing that um, what I can say, even if I think it's very much founded on empirical evidence, still is not it. <laughs> and I've done much work on flowers. My first book was on flowers. And uh, I, I also used a lot of photography, and so realizing that although this, what I showed, portrays an aspect of reality, it does not portray, it cannot portray reality as it is. So it made me a bit more humble, I would say. And another very important consequence of this is that we can abstract in different ways from reality. That means some people can select certain features, other people can select other features, and very often then they come to maybe even contradictory conclusions. But this need not be contradictory. In contradictory, in fact, it it can be complementary because different. Uh, different uh, viewpoints present 
different um, aspects of reality, and so they enrich our experience. Um, very often, um, scientists, philosophers, religious people are in a well, practice an either or uh, logic. Uh, either I am right, or you are right, or I'm wrong, or you are wrong, but it cannot be both. And I think uh, we have learned a great lesson in this respect from quantum physics, because as you know, in quantum physics, uh, in the 19th century, there was the debate whether um, light uh, or an electron essentially is a particle or a wave. And then uh, Niels Bohr in the beginning of the 20th century suggested that it can be both depending on how you look at it. So that the particle and the wave view are complementary. They are not uh, contradictory. They don't exclude each other. They complement each other. And in my field in plant morphology, there are also many contradictory ideas around. And I eventually came to the conclusion that they complement one another. That doesn't necessarily mean that one view is equally correct uh, or tenable as another one. One may be more comprehensive than the other one, but a view that is even less comprehensive can illuminate some aspects that the more comprehensive one may, may miss. So complementarity was a very important discovery for me because uh, when, if one is aware of the process of abstraction, then one can see that one can abstract, select in different ways, and, and so uh, obtain different views of reality that uh, complement one another. I know that in uh, his book, Science and Sanity, Korzybski, uh, in the subtitle, refers to general semantics as being based on non-Aristotelian logic. Yes, and, and that is very important because, uh, as you know, in Aristotelian logic, there are three uh, laws of thought. And uh, the first one is the law of identity. A equals A, and and, uh, and of course Kosipsky emphasizes non-identity because um, if you look at objects, no object is exactly identical with another one, and um, even the same object at one time is not identical with itself at another time. For example, I am today, I am not the same exactly the same uh, that I was a week ago. I'm not completely identical. And um, you know the famous slogan by Heraclitus uh, that you can never step twice into the same river because the second time you step into it, the river has changed and you have changed. So that means there is no identity. And um, in our culture, I find there is, uh, for some time, the, I would almost call it a cult of identity. There is so much talk about identity. And identity, I think, exists only in mathematics, uh, in logic, where you, say, where you can say A is A or one is one. But in the real world, there is no identity. It may come close, maybe, but uh, there is no identity. And... Uh, and Korsipsky emphasized that very much. And then, of course, he also emphasized very much the 
non-identity between uh, language and reality or sensory uh, experience and uh, reality. So uh, in a sense, one could say non-identity is one of the central um, topics of uh, general semantics and uh, often not sufficiently recognized. Well, we're getting to uh, the heart of some of our deepest social problems. For example, stereotyping and yes. prejudice, where uh, you hear a word, he's a communist, and we think we know who, uh, all about him now because we have a label, he's a communist, or he's a, he's a capitalist, or he... Or, or he is a member of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or one of our parties, right? As if this characterizes a person completely. Uh. And I gather that in, in the field of education itself, it can be an issue for students where a, a student may do poorly on an exam and get labeled even subconsciously by a teacher as, you know, this is a poor student because of whatever happened in the past. Yes, yes. Uh, I have been very interested also in, uh, in Ken Wilber, and uh, he emphasizes different um, developmental streams. And so the, someone may be highly advanced in the cognitive stream, another one more in the moral stream, another one more in the mathematical stream or what have you. And, uh, and, and so if, if, some if one person is not highly developed in one stream, that doesn't mean that he cannot be highly developed or more developed in another stream. And that, that is often ignored. In fact, the IQ measures only one aspect of personality. And so uh, a, a person cannot be really completely characterized by his or her IQ. I'm also under the impression that the rational emotive behavior therapy, which is a topic that I've covered quite a bit uh, in my career as an interviewer. I interviewed the founder of that discipline, Albert Ellis, a number of times, and more recently his widow, Debbie Jaffe Ellis. And his, his philosophy was very strongly influenced by Korzybski. He, he would, for example, uh, say uh, people masturbate. We use the word must and, and, and take it literally. I must do this. I must do that as if we have no choice. In a way, he went even further than uh, Korzybski because Korzybski wanted to eliminate the is of identity and, and the is of predication. There is, there is a further development uh, called E-prime. Um, people who subscribe to E-prime, e they want to eliminate the verb to be. And <laughs> this seems very strange, but um, Ellis actually wrote a book, the book I have, completely in E-prime. And it's very easy to read, so it can be done. <laughs> But maybe it's not necessary. I think the most important thing, I think, is the, the elimination of the is of identity and the is of predication. And that is so difficult to do. I am so much aware of it, but I don't think that I can always avoid it. I, I still fall into this trap at times. So for that reason, Kosipsky and uh, some of his followers uh, said that we actually need 
training, training in uh, general semantics, we have to change our habits. And as you know, that's very difficult, changing one's habits. I gather there's been some controversy as to whether people who practice the disciplines associated with general semantics are, in fact, successful in changing their habits. As far as I'm concerned, I must admit I have been only partially successful, but um, I think it still makes a huge difference because even if I don't add etc., which to some people may may sound strange anyhow, I may I I may have the awareness that when I say something, he is this or he is that. That's not all he is, and uh, I think uh, we just. Uh, are imperfect in some way, but that doesn't mean that we can learn. And uh, I'm still on the <laughs> in the learning process concerning general semantics, and uh, it makes a huge difference in my life. Also, what I have learned, one very important thing I've learned through general semantics is the importance of silence and the silent level, which also has brought me closer to meditation. And uh, so I think uh, just because we cannot be perfect, that doesn't mean that therefore general semantics is wrong or a pseudoscience. Well, it seems to me that some of the most influential and important uh, and valid movements of, of the last hundred years or so have, have been labeled as pseudoscience. Depth psychology, Freud and Jung, uh, both have been labeled as, as, as pseudoscientists. The whole field of parapsychology, which is very rigorous and empirical, has been labeled as, as pseudoscience. So I guess one would have to say that the label is never correct. No, no, I agree. And uh, it, it, it is a political strategy, I think. For example, the conventional uh, medicine uh, does not favor alternative holistic medicine. And so alternative medicine is often labeled a pseudoscience, which I think uh, is, is not appropriate because it's based on much evidence. I think it actually, these days, it's worse, it's getting worse in this respect because people who don't just use the label pseudoscience, they use the label misinformation, disinformation, and conspiracy theory. So if you have a, a view that is based on evidence but that contradicts the official narrative, you are often labeled now a conspiracy scientist. I think this is a very unfair, very destructive tendency these days. I am very concerned about that. If we label you a, a Nobel laureate uh, or a conspiracy theorist, people are going to draw very different conclusions. Yes, yes. <laughs> but actually, it also happens that sometimes Nobel laureates who don't agree with the official narrative are labeled conspiracy theorists, which is <laughs> really paradoxical. The point you're ultimately making is that every label is problematic. Yes, 
if if we think that's all a person is, what the label says, then uh, it's very problematic. We need to add the etc. Or if we don't say it, at least be aware of it. But if we don't say it, well, it's often ignored, and then the consequences can be very destructive. I suppose this is even true with, re, in fact, perhaps particularly true with regard to our institutions. People use a word like government or the CIA or the army, and, and we assume that we understand those institutions because we have a label for them. Yes, oh yes, I agree. And also, I'm concerned about labeling people as terrorists. Of course, they may be terrorists and we condone their actions, but that's not all they are. And to refuse talking to them, I think is a great mistake. I read a book, I don't remember the author of the book, it's entitled Talking to Terrorists. And he showed how uh, talking to terrorists actually could resolve problems, sometimes long-standing problems. And so, uh, but again, uh, before one can do it, I think one has to realize that this person is not only a terrorist. That's not all he or she is, but that he is a lot more and uh, that we may touch that person in other ways that, uh, that unite us as human beings. So you, you seem to be suggesting ultimately that nobody is irredeemable, no matter what label we may throw on a person, they're always going to be more complex than that, and you cannot deprive them of their basic humanity by labeling them. Yes, oh yes, I think that is very important, and uh, I think there have been real breakthroughs when one uh, when one can go beyond the labels. Uh, there's a nice story by Jampolsky where he um, uh, ha was called. He's a psychiatrist. Uh, was called to the ward, and he looked through the little window uh, of one uh, room and saw that uh, the patient there had become very, very aggressive. And so he, 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 he didn't dare opening the door. But then he noticed that the patient actually was also very fearful. And so he himself had fear. The patient had fear. They connected through their fear. He could open the door and they embraced each other. So you see, I mean, if we look, if we can look beyond uh, just one label or one trade or whatever, uh, doors can open that lead far, far beyond uh, these restrictions. Now, Jerry Jampolsky uh, was a friend of mine. He's been interviewed on the original Thinking Aloud series, and he is the author, as I recall, of the book, Love is Letting Go of Fear. I think I have that book. Yeah, I, I have tremendous respect for Jampolsky. <laughs> it's wonderful that you interviewed him. What I'm learning from you is that general semantics seems to be uh, in consonance, uh, completely compatible with what we could think of as the global mystical tradition or the perennial philosophy. Yes, yes it is. And uh, in a way it also even goes beyond it because uh, I think one problem with uh, spiritual traditions, sometimes, not always, is that they emphasize so much um, 
um, what they call higher realms and are not sufficiently connected to uh, to down, I mean, down to earth issues. And uh, Korsipsky was very much, lived very much down to earth. And yet, at the same time, he could also appreciate what's beyond it, like uh, silence. And so he connected with these traditions. Well, Rolf Sattler, once again, this has been a delightful and very informative conversation about issues that are crucial to all of us as we go about our daily lives and our daily business. Rolf, I want to thank you so much for being with me today. Through these interviews, you do a great service to humanity. Thank you very much, Jeff. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. Thank you.